As we continue in our worship this morning, once more, I want to say to you, I hope that you had a wonderful celebration of the resurrection last week. And as we continue in the celebration of the resurrection of Christ, let's get ready to join our hearts together as we dive into God's word with one another. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, this day may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today we hear these words in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his, that is Jesus's suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This one truth changes everything. I love the way it's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, when it says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. In his resurrection, let us be clear, not even death could hold Jesus back. So I want to ask us this morning to do our best to let the reality of that description sink in for us here today. So one more time, hear these words in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. And let us hear the good news, the full force of the good news that's intended when this truth is shared with us. After Jesus' suffering, he presented himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. I want to invite us to hold on to that truth here today. And after we explore a little bit of what it means for Jesus to be alive, and after we explore him conquering death, did you hear the, one of the very first things that he did this morning? Actually, in verse 4, we're told of chapter 1 with Acts today, it says this, On one occasion, while he, that is Jesus, was eating with them. So if you were with us in our last sermon series, we talked a lot about Jesus being at the table and eating with people and breaking down barriers with people. And here, immediately after conquering death, what do we see just Jesus doing? Yet again, eating, breaking down barriers. In this case, breaking down the barrier of death and eating with his disciples. I love that description that we hear this morning. In celebrating resurrection, Jesus is eating with his disciples. I hope that your Easter or resurrection celebration included a fair amount of eating as well. And I want to extend to all of you a very happy Easter today. And I have some really good news for you. Easter is not over. Easter is not a once and done thing. The resurrection continues. And then I have a second piece of good news for you today. The resurrection changes everything. The fact that Jesus is alive changes everything because it means that he is Lord of all. Because Jesus is Lord of all, because the resurrection is our reality, it means that our racism, our hatred, our divisions, our egos, our selfishness, our politics, our jealousies, 
COVID, finances, none of those things have the final say. The resurrection means that God's church will continue forever. It means that death will not reign. It means that God's church will thrive no matter what age, no matter what circumstances are coming against it. And if Jesus had not conquered death, he would not be Lord of all. But because he has, let me say it again, this reality changes everything. The author of the book of Acts is the same writer as the gospel writer of Luke. And after writing about the life of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, now this author tells us about how the early church came to be and how the early Christian movement came to be in the book of Acts. And notice how Luke here begins in the book of Acts by immediately, we're only at verse three, immediately letting us know that Jesus is alive. Luke is making it clear that Jesus has conquered death. Therefore, it's in the conquering of death, it proves that Jesus is Lord of all because there is no greater enemy, there is no greater obstacle to conquer than death. So if Jesus conquers death, and he does in the resurrection, that is proof that he is Lord of all. There is nothing that can stand against him. I wanna ask us today to let that be our starting point. This is the fundamental truth and reality over which we're gonna build everything else in this particular sermon series. The recognition, the claim, the understanding, the living into that Jesus is Lord of all. And if anyone should know this, it should be God's people. It should be the church. And yet, even in the church, we who are Jesus followers, we who should know that Jesus is Lord, we so easily can get distracted. We tend to make things complicated. We forget whose we are. We forget what we're to be about. And yes, life happens, and elections happen, and news happens, and jobs happen, and Division happens, and loss happens, and grief happens, and social media happens, and accidents happen, and we happen. So in this particular sermon series, we are going to focus on what it means to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by exploring some of the fundamental bedrock truths of what it means to have the DNA of a Jesus disciple. And we want to live into those DNA elements of being a disciple of Christ. And we're going to explore very carefully a number of those so that we as God's people can be the church that God has intended. And we begin today with the recognition, the claim, the truth that Jesus is Lord. As that becomes part of our DNA, it will reflect in everything else that we do as God's church. So if Jesus is Lord of all, and his life today, the conquering of death, proves that he is Lord of all, then here's a shocker for you. It means you and I, that we're not Lord of all. And yet you and I tend to act day in and day out as if we are Lord. We tend to tell God what we want and what we expect and the timetable for things that we want to occur. And we spend a lot of our time acting more like we are Lord of all rather than recognizing that it is Jesus who's Lord of all. And the results of that have become pretty obvious in our world. It is no surprise to you, we've talked about this in the past and you hear this in lots of different places, that in our Western culture, the church has been in decline for quite a while. And again, we've mentioned this in the past that it's estimated around 80% of churches are either plateaued or declining. 
Some estimates say that over 6,000 churches a year are closing, and that was before the pandemic. Recent estimates say that only about 36% of people are coming back to in-person worship uh, after this COVID experience and not sure when the rest may return. And even just in the last couple of weeks, there's been a new Gallup poll that has come out that has said for the very first time in our recent cultural history, that Americans, less than 50% of them, are connected in church membership somewhere. After decades of hovering around 70%, recently there's been a very sharp decline that for the first time, under 50% of Americans currently uh, are connected in a church through membership. Now, we can come up with all kinds of reasons why this decline has been occurring. We can say it's about bad cultural influence. We can talk about social media or politics. We can talk about our busyness. We can talk about COVID. Uh, we can talk about all kinds of reasons why there's been this decline in the church. But here's what I would suggest to us here today. Part of what I believe is going on and the reason for the decline is that even among God's people, we are struggling with what I would call a lordship issue. Specifically, I believe that many of us do not have a belief problem when it comes to God. We have a lordship problem when it comes to God. And to be clear, this applies to all of us. Those of us who show up in one form or another every week to worship, and those who connect maybe once a month, those of us who worship only online, or those of us who worship only in person, this lordship issue, it applies to us all. Many of us have no problem confessing a belief in Jesus, but we do have a problem completely submitting our lives to the lordship of Christ over every area of our lives. And once we begin to forfeit our allegiance to Jesus as Lord, our faith becomes anemic. Here's how significant surrendering to the Lordship of Christ is in our lives. Without surrendering to the Lordship of Christ, we can have the most beautiful facilities, the most talented staff, the best musicians, the most eloquent and profound of sermons, and see little to no kingdom difference made for Jesus Christ. But with a surrender to the Lordship of Christ, we can have none of those things that I just mentioned, and we can still see a Holy Spirit explosion and see lives changed and transformed in Jesus Christ. Let me give you two examples that demonstrates what I'm talking about here. First of all, we are in the book of Acts here this morning. We hear now that Jesus is alive, he has conquered death, he is revealing his lordship, and he's appearing to these various disciples. And we're experiencing the very beginnings of what we will see will be the seeds of the early church and Christian movement. An author named Rodney Stark estimates there were around 25,000 Christians around 100 AD as the early church movement was just getting underway. However, by the year 310 AD, so just two centuries later, it's estimated there were upwards of 20 million Christians in the world at that time. Now, that is a staggering increase in any age at any time. It's roughly an 800% increase. But here's what makes all of this even more remarkable. At this particular time, while this growth was occurring, to be a Christian meant you were a member of an illegal religion. They didn't have church buildings at all the way that we do, and certainly not the ease to walk into them all over the place. 
They didn't have scriptures in the way that you and I do today. They didn't have professional leaders or pastors or seminaries. They had no formal worship services or wonderful youth groups or worship bands or choirs or anything to enjoy in terms of worship that you and I do. And it was incredibly hard at that time to join the church, not easy. So how'd they do it? How did they grow so exponentially for those 200 years? Part of the answer is they recognized Jesus as Lord of all, and they submitted every area of their lives to the Lordship of Christ. After all, you don't sacrifice everything that you have. You don't stare down persecution. You don't face financial suffering. You don't be willing to be disowned by your family. You don't stare death in the face without recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who is greater than any of those things I just named. The Lordship determines the discipleship. And so these early Christians, as they recognized Jesus Christ as Lord, they went where he called, even if it was into new places and existing in new ways. It was a core part of their DNA of their discipleship. Now, sometimes we hear these kinds of numbers and it's easy to think, well, that was a long time ago. That was 2000 years ago. Uh, that was a freak time in history. It doesn't really work that way anymore. However, I would invite us this morning to consider a second example, something that's happening right now, and that is the underground church movement happening in China. Mao Zedong was the Chinese communist revolutionary who was the founder of the People's Republic of China, and he ruled as the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party from its establishment in 1949 until his death in 1976. And during his time in power, he initiated a systemic purge of religion in China. And at the time when this purge began, it was estimated there were around 2 million Christians in China. Now, as part of the systemic persecution, Mao banished all foreign, minist all foreign min ministers, missionaries, foreigners in that way, missionaries, I should say, all nationalized church property, he had killed most senior church leaders. He killed or imprisoned second and third level leaders in religion. He banned all public meetings of Christians with the threat of death or torture, and then proceeded to perpetrate one of the cruelest persecutions of Christians on historical record. The clear aim was to obliterate all religion, including Christianity from China. Eventually in the late 1970s, after Mao's death, after his regime, a number of foreign missionaries and church officials were allowed back into the country under strict supervision. They expected to find a church decimated, a church in shambles, a battered people, a battered church. You know what they discovered? The exact opposite. At that time, they estimated about 60 million Christians and counting after two million. And it's just continued to skyrocket since then. In 2006, David Aikman, who was the former Beijing bureau chief, suggested in his book, Jesus in Beijing, there were as many as 80 million Christians. And it's been estimated that the growth rate has continued at around seven to 10% every year since then, resulting maybe in around 120 to 200 million Christians in China. So that if this growth rate continues, by the year 2030, the largest Christian population in the entire world will be in China. 
and it's continuing to grow. It's absolutely incredible. No matter how you look at it, this is one of the most significant transformational Christian movements in the history of the church. And remember, all of this happened when people had very few Bibles, no professional clergy, not able to just walk in and enjoy worship or celebrate in a church building or facility, not having open seminaries, no official leadership structures, no central organization, no mass meetings, and yet the numbers grew. <laughs> Why? It begins with the recognition that Jesus is Lord and that we give our allegiance to Christ as Lord. We do not give our allegiance to Mao Zedong or the government, or the military. We don't surrender to fear of persecution. We don't live out of convenience when it comes to faith. We give our full allegiance to the Lordship of Christ as number one in our lives. Jesus as Lord. When Jesus is Lord of our lives, all other things become secondary. When Jesus is Lord, death, oppression, persecution no longer hold power in our lives. Jesus is Lord. It doesn't mean that we have to necessarily die for our faith in order to remain faithful, but it does mean things like choosing to perhaps on purpose live in a smaller home in order to be more generous with our resources. Or it does mean saying, I'm gonna to choose to give sacrificially, even when I'm not quite sure how it's all gonna work out. It might mean getting up earlier in the day just to give time to God to be in prayer. It might mean getting up to serve our community instead of sleeping in. It might mean building relationships intentionally with people who are different than me. It might mean spending more time with our children instead of engaging in our favorite hobby that indulges my desires. Ultimately, all of those things are lordship issues. When it comes to exploring lordship in Christ, there's really two levels for us to be aware of. Number one is to recognize Jesus as Lord means he is Lord of all creation. The recognition there's nothing greater in all the universe. There's no power, no greater love than Christ in anywhere in the universe. I love the way Philippians 2 says it. This is the recognition that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lordship of Christ of all creation is evidenced in the resurrection, where again, not even death could hold Jesus back. Please hear that as a word of comfort this day. Again, that means nothing that we are facing right now no struggle, no broken relationship, no, no finances, no sickness, no pain. Nothing is greater than Christ. Nothing. I love how we hear this in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, there's something called the Shema. It, means, it says this in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or as the message version says it, God our God, God the one and only. To our ears, that may not sound like a big deal, but in the Old Testament culture, this statement on reality was revolutionary. It was a groundbreaking statement. The fancy theological term here is that this is a claim of biblical monotheism, which means mono means one, one Lord of all. In non-fancy or non-technical language, we could say it this way. 
ain't no other God but this one. This God is it. This God is Lord of all. And here's why this is such a big deal. People at this time in the Old Testament, when this claim was made and brought up, they believed there were many gods. They were actually a very religious people or a very spiritual people, except they believed in a whole bunch of gods, a different god for each component of life. The fancy theological term for this is called polytheism. Poly means many. They had a belief in many gods, not one god. And so there was no sense that there was one God over all things. That might, again, not sound like a big deal, but here's what this meant in daily life. Let's say in ancient times, you wanted to go down to the river and get some water and bring back to your home. And let's say on your way to the river, you had to go through some fields and past a forest in order to get to the river. With a belief in many gods, you faced a religious dilemma just to go get water. Because again, it was believed there was a different God overseeing every part of life. So the seemingly simple task of going to get water really wasn't simple at all. Because what it meant is you would have to take a sacrificial offering for the God of the fields and a sacrificial offering for the God of the forest and a sacrificial offering for the God of the river and on and on and on just to get some water. It was again believed there was a God over every sphere of life. This is the context in which we hear Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. I cannot overstate how countercultural this statement would have been. It's a statement not just about the nature of God being divine over nature, it's also a claim that all of life is called to fall under this God and that he is Lord over every single aspect of creation. Again, the people at this time were very religious, but they compartmentalized their life into different pieces where there was a different God over each compartmentalized part of their life. And then along comes this God and the Israelite people, and they give this one exclusive claim that their God is one, only one God, Lord of all, Lord over all. It's no longer many gods, polytheism. It is one God, monotheism. And this is astounding and groundbreaking because now the people have only one reference point for life and existence and purpose and meaning. Now the religious task was to take all of life and bring it under the one God and not share it among lots of different gods. And again, this statement, again, called the Shema, it's the first and original instance of this complete and systemic claim on our lives. It's a claim of utter lordship. So because of this, because God is one, it becomes our task to bring every part of our lives under this God. That's why in the Old Testament, I know it sounds really weird, but you find all of these obscure laws Things like what to do when your donkey falls in a pit and what to do about milieu in your kitchen and what to do with a woman's menstrual cycle. I mean, just all these obscure things that to you and I sound weird. But why are those things mentioned in the Bible? Because every single part of life, even the most obscure and mundane, are to fall under the Lordship of Christ. In our Western worldview, we tend to separate life into religious and non-religious, personal and private, secular and sacred. Not so in the biblical mindset. Not so with this claim of the Lordship of Christ who is Lord of all. Life then 
is meant to be sacred in all ways as God is part of every area of our lives. The problem for you and I is that we tend to separate and say, God, you can be Lord of this part of my life, but not this part or this part or this part. And this is why the early Christians were so dangerous. The early church existed in the time of the Roman Empire. Remember, the emperors of the Roman Empire were called Caesars. Caesars were defined as lords. And they would give you freedom to do kind of what you wanted within the empire as long as you always gave ultimate allegiance to Caesar as Lord. Well, guess what the early Christians did? They would not give their ultimate allegiance to Caesar as Lord. They gave it to Christ, to God as Lord of all, which made them subversive, dangerous, because they gave their allegiance ultimately to Christ as Lord, not the nation state. And so they were viewed as a threat. The early Christians were willing to bring all parts of their lives under the Lordship of Christ, every single part. They refused to be polytheists. But you and I still tend to operate as if we are polytheists. And probably the biggest competing factor of being Lord of our lives is probably us ourselves. We still like to be Lord. We still like to call the shots. Which leads me to my final point this day. It's not just that Christ is Lord of all creation. Jesus as Lord means that he is also Lord of my personal life. And here the Lordship of Christ becomes very intimate, very deep, very personal in each one of our lives. He's not just Lord of all of creation out there. He's he's Lord of me. Which means I personally seek to recalibrate all areas of my life and bring them under the Lordship of Christ to bring honor and glory to him. For many of us, we might be willing to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of all of creation, but we might struggle then with what it means for Jesus to be Lord of my life. Which means not just when I'm at church, but Jesus as Lord of my life in my job, in my private time, in my politics, in my worldview, in my relationships. Many of us tend to be good with Jesus as Lord and Savior, but we struggle with him as Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of my credit card and my bank statement and my business dealings and every other part of life. For how many of us is Jesus Lord on Sunday, but not Monday or Thursday or Friday? where we too act as if there's a different God in each sphere, in each day, in each part of our lives. Jesus as Lord is the most simple and most profound reality in the universe. Jesus as Lord again changes everything. It's so personal and it's so powerful. For me, it occurred as a youth, as a teenager, in a water park in central Pennsylvania, when during a time of prayer with some other people, even though I had prayed a hundred, maybe a thousand times before, for some reason in that moment, something clicked in my heart and I realized that Jesus knew me. Jesus loved me. Jesus died for me in all my messiness and all my brokenness. And he gave it all for me so that I might know him, be loved by him, and welcomed in him. And 
and it changed everything. And I said, Lord, here's my life. Take it and use it as you will. I want to do my absolute best to surrender all of who I am, not just parts of who I am, but all of who I am to you. The Lord of creation became Lord of my life. So today, church, I invite you to recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord of all, including our lives. Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth and you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Do you believe that? Do you know that? That Jesus isn't just Lord of all, but he is Lord of our lives. And he invites us today to know him as Lord and Savior. I invite you, if that is a prayer that you have never offered, would you let us know so that we can pray with you, so that together we can welcome Christ as Lord in our lives, in every part of who we are. Some of us have never taken that step. I invite us to take that step today. Some of us have been good at believing in Jesus, but he's not been Lord of our lives. I invite us today to shift from believing to welcoming the Lordship in every part of our lives. And some of us have welcomed Lordship in parts of our lives, but not the whole of our lives. And I invite us today to make that shift. And lest we ever forget, church, this is good, good, good news. It's challenging, yes, but it's also good because it is life-giving. And when we recognize that Jesus is Lord of all, it means we're not which means we don't have to carry the weight and the burden and the stresses of the world on our shoulders. Because let's face it, carrying that weight all the time is exhausting and burdensome and wearying, and ultimately it crushes us. But we don't have to be overwhelmed that way anymore. We don't have to be Lord of the universe because Jesus is Lord of the universe. So today, let us welcome him in. Let us receive the peace and the joy and the grace and the love and the intimacy that only he can give. And may we be willing to follow him wherever he may go as disciples with the DNA of Christ as Lord in us. Because today, church, the grave is empty. Death has been defeated because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. May we receive it this day. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, in these moments, as we get ready in just a few moments to celebrate communion, may we truly commune with you. And Lord God, this day, if we have never welcomed you as Lord and Savior, let us do so by confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart. And Lord, this day, if we've tended to believe in you, but not followed you as Lord and Savior, may we make that shift to follow you as Lord. And God, for those of us to whom you've been Lord of part of our life, but not our whole life, we want to come and surrender all to you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are Lord of all. May we receive your Lordship this day.